This is Women Killing It. Each week, women who are killing it in their careers share their stories and advice for making it in today's working world. Your host is Sally Hubbard. Today, we're going to do something a little different. After last week's episode, where I talked to Gretchen Rubin about her new book, The Four Tendencies, I sat down with my producer, Carolyn Duncan. Carolyn and I are going to talk about a bunch of different ideas that came up after Gretchen Rubin's episode from last week. And the first thing that I wanted to do was just give a layout of the four tendencies that Gretchen described in case you haven't had a chance to listen to the episode, though I do recommend that you check it out. Her book describes a personality paradigm of four tendencies that are based on how you respond to outer and inner expectations. One category is called an upholder, and upholders generally meet both inner and outer expectations on their own. It's very easy for them to meet those expectations. Questioners have an easier time meeting their inner expectations, and they push back against expectations that are imposed from the outside. Now, obligers readily meet outer expectations, but sometimes have a hard time meeting inner expectations. Rebels resist both inner and outer expectations. One of the big issues that came up in the episode was the obliger tendency seems a lot like a people pleaser tendency in some ways. Being more willing to meet outer expectations rather than the expectations that you have for yourself in some ways seems like a stereotypical feminine characteristic to please other people and meet the expectations that others are imposing on you and to prioritize those over your own expectations for yourself. For instance, you often hear a busy working mom talk about struggling to fit in self-care or to fit in exercise or other things that are expectations that they are imposing on themselves, whereas pleasing the boss or pleasing the spouse or children tends to be prioritized. Now, Gretchen was of the view that these four tendencies are not gendered and that obligers is the biggest category of the tendencies and that it equally applies to both men and women. Carolyn, what did you think about that? How can we reconcile that with some of the issues that we've been talking about on this podcast with women kind of losing touch with their own inner wants and needs and catering to others instead? I think, I mean, it was, it was definitely interesting to hear more of like the individual take on it versus the group tendency of women as people pleasers slash obligers. But I think what stood out to me was, you know, the example that Gretchen gave us to a woman, maybe an obliger when it comes to, you know, meeting family expectations and not focusing on herself. Whereas a man or a woman who's focusing on a client and who says everything is at the at the mercy of the client and the client comes first, not me. You know, she was equating those as both being sort of obliger tendencies. But if we put it in context of the podcast and a lot of the other other women we've talked to, it seems like those things are definitely perceived very differently <laughs> in the world. So, um, you know, someone, man or woman, who puts all their focus on a corporate client or a patient, if they're a physician or a nurse, they're not necessarily seen as a, a people pleaser or a someone who isn't achieving their goals. Um, whereas a, a mom who's focusing on getting dinner on the table or picking up her kids from school or activities, that's definitely not seen as 
someone who's achieving their own goals. So I think Gretchen's right that maybe the tendencies themselves are not gendered, but I think the way it's perceived and therefore like what it leads to for women, if they are obligers, is more challenging than someone who's an obliger who's obliging to a patient or a customer or something like that. That's interesting. So there may be an issue of the, just the perception of the same type of obliging tendency and it may be lower valued when it's being done by women than it is when it's being done by men right yeah or who the who the who's on the other side of it really like who's the you know the the obliger tendency is you're readily able to meet outer expectations and if the outer expectation is that you're going to close this deal for your client and make a lot of money for your company or or you're going to complete a surgery on a, on, a, on a patient when you're a doctor, obviously the way that that's perceived is probably positive and people see that aligned with your goals based on what your career is. Whereas, you know, like I said, an, an obliger who's doing something around caregiving, that's not necessarily seen as something that's valuable to both that individual as well as the people who are getting the benefit of that person's obliging. Right. And it's also obliging for payment versus obliging <laughs> yeah. for unpaid labor, right? Yes, yeah. While the tendency may be common for both men and women to oblige to others, the the outcome of it or, or how it aligns to the overall goals for that person or that person's family are, are often seen very differently. And I also think where gender probably comes in a lot and where you can reconcile gender with Gretchen's kind of non-gendered approach is that the entire paradigm is about how do you meet expectations and the expectations that are put on women versus men, the outer expectations are vastly different. And the inner expectations can be different too. And that Mm -hmm. can be a result of culture. I talk a lot about the second shift and the imbalance of labor on the home front. And so if you think of those second shift obligations as outward expectations of getting dinner on the table, of taking signing up the child for a ballet class, of arranging the play dates, of doing all the emotional labor, of taking care of all the whole family, like extended family, remembering birthdays, all of those (laughs) things um, are all outer expectations, right, that are disproportionately falling on the shoulders of women. So I think that's one way that you could reconcile the idea that this framework is a non-gendered framework, but in our gendered culture, it can have a quite different effect on men and women in terms of whether you're an obliger. And if you have a lot more expectations, a lot more outer expectations on you, you can be more subject to burnout and overwhelm. Yeah, the sheer volume <laughs> could be very different. Gretchen made some one of made some great points, and one of my favorite quotes from her in the interview was that she said, "You know, we're, we're way more free than we think," which I think is absolutely true. But I think for for some people, if those if there's so many outer expectations that are completely overshadowing the inner things that they they think they value, the expectations that they would have to reset with their families or their friends or their coworkers to say like, hey, I'm more free than I think and I want to cut out these five things from my life. <laughs> like There would be a big challenge, I think, with resetting those expectations for some people just because of the way some families operate, some companies operate. The sheer volume of outer expectations... I do think there's quite a difference, and there's been some recent examples that make me really 
think about that. Someone just sent me this funny um, video that, that was in that TV show, My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, and she does this whole routine that's called My Sexy Getting Ready Song. <laughs> and she's doing like a million torturous things to herself to get ready to go on a date, waxing and all these treatments. And then it's like, and this is what the guys are doing. And they show a guy laying on the couch to get ready f- before his date. <laughs> so, you know, it's yeah, certainly just get dressed. Area. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> We had Kristen Pressner on the show, and mm. she was talking about the stereotypical traits that we associate with the feminine and the masculine. And she said, feminine, it is take care. And for masculine, it's take charge. Yeah. And if there are obligers in each gender in equal numbers, but the men are obliging to the outer expectation to take charge, and the women are obliging to the outer expe- expectation to take care, that's what we'll see a lot of consequences in the workforce especially in the gender pay gap right exactly and i think you know the the, how that ends up playing out in you know in certain workplaces there may be you know even very progressive workplaces there may still be an expectation that um you know women are doing that those care pieces even if they are taking charge like you know Kristen, as you mentioned you know she's a a very senior executive and and i'm sure she's progressed her career by taking charge, but there may still be an expectation that she's taking care or obliging to certain requests as it relates to, you know, helping other employees, which is not something that, you know, men at a very executive level are expected to do or or asked to do. And when I raised the point with Gretchen that I felt that some of this was more gendered because just from what I've been hearing on this show, so many women are out of touch with what they want for themselves and are focused more on what others want. And I even had on this show, Anna Hamayun, who wrote The Myth of the Perfect Girl and talked about how even from a young age, girls were so focused on outward measures of achievement and being the good girl who satisfies your teachers. And we see this with girls doing very, very well in school. But then when they get out to the working world, it's a different a different system where taking charge is more rewarded, right, than pleasing authority figures. Right. You can cha- think- in the workplace you can you can challenge the the teacher slash boss, <laughs> the teacher as your boss, but and that can be something that's, you know, rewarded depending on how constructively you do it. Whereas if you do that in school, that's not necessarily going to be something that's that's rewarded. Yeah, and in terms of being a CEO of a company, it's it's about taking a leadership role. So when I brought that up with her, she made the point that she thinks there's a lot more differences within each gender than between the genders. Mm-hmm. And I completely agree with that, right? Like in terms of, for example, strength, the, stre- the strongest woman versus the weakest woman, there's going to be a lot more difference in there than generally on average strength between men and women, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I remember these arguments being put out a lot when I was studying women's women's studies back in college, and this was back in the 90s. And back then, feminist thought put a lot of focus on showing that men and women are not that different. Because the idea was whenever we have been put forward as different, that's been used to exclude us, mm-hmm. right? You know, women aren't strong, so they can't be firefighters, right? <laughs> so the movement at that time was very much focused on men and women are not different, we're the same, Everybody's an individual. And now you see feminist thinking being very different. Um, I mean, of course, there's so many different variations of feminist thinking. Yeah. But you see people like Sally Krawcheck, um, who is more of a mainstream feminist, but she is making a lot of arguments about let's reward the strengths that women bring to the table. 
Yeah, that we are different and we should embrace the difference and show how the, that difference actually leads to us doing better. And there's been tons of studies about how women-led companies get better results and how um, you should invest in women companies because you'll get better return on your investment. So this new way of thinking is much more embracing difference and saying, we've got all these great qualities that you need to reward. And, and it's there's always not one way, been a there's not one way to be successful or run a company. Yeah. Right. Bringing that diverse thought and those differences can be right. the thing that makes you successful. Yeah. Right. That that it's diversity that gets better results because men and women are different. It's tricky because, you know, I like the idea of embracing women's strengths. At the same time, I do believe that the differences within each gender are different, are greater than the differences between the gender. And I almost feel like in trying to improve the state of women in the working world, we need to talk in stereotypes. It's almost like I always feel on this podcast that I'm kind of talking in stereotypes. Stereotypes can be harmful. So I, this is just like a very sticky issue that I constantly struggle with. Yeah. yeah. And in, in, in the case of, you know, something like the four tendencies, it's like you, you don't want to put the, you know, individuals into a box based on their tendency or based on their, their gender plus their tendency. But at the same time, you know, if these frameworks exist and these stereotypes exist, I mean, especially because this is what I've taken away from your podcast, Sally, is that you're, when you're having a conversation with someone and you're highlighting that what's helped make them successful and they've identified some of the barriers in the, in their way because of their gender or because of how they've responded to certain things by bringing that to light, it's helping other women who might who might want to follow in that path, it allows them to see that, you know, hey, if I if I understand that this is someone's expectation of me, but it's not something I need to bend to or something that I need to, to necessarily do, and I can still be successful, that gives younger women or women who are trying to expand their, their horizons, it gives them an opportunity to see that like, hey, I can do it by different means. I don't have to follow X person's expectations, or I don't have to sacrifice the things that I really care about because there's this outer expectation on me. Yeah, you know, when, one thing that was really interesting about the conversation with Gretchen was that it came right after I had talked to Jill Filipovic, who wrote The H Spot, The Feminist mm -hmm. Pursuit of Happiness. And in her book, she talks so much about how our entire society, political system, educational system, all the public institutions, are built around an idea of the pursuit of happiness that the founding fathers set forth. But when they were talking about it, they were talking about the pursuit of happiness for white men. And her book talks about how basically the entire system is rigged. It's structured to help buttress the happiness of the white men. And women and people of color are really just here to make that happen for them. And she also talks about how women's happiness has never been prioritized. And if we started to prioritize women's happiness and pleasure, we would be able to solve a lot of the social problems. And, you know, that there's always been kind of this vaulted vision of the perfect woman is the selfless mother. Mm -hmm. So it was a real stark juxtaposition between that and talking to Gretchen, who thinks that if you're an obliger or a man or a woman, you're going to be someone who's meeting those outer expectations and she doesn't really view it that differently um, as affecting the two different genders. So and that your potential route to happiness or satisfaction is by creating outer accountability for your own inner wants and needs, which means like the, the 
the onus is on you to uh, <laughs> to let everyone know like, hey, I care about X, Y, and Z and I want to get it done. Hold me accountable, which you know, for a lot of people is not that easy and it's not necessarily ideal for that to be the way that everyone has to operate in order to, uh, in order to achieve their, their inner happiness. Yeah. It's just interesting because you have, um, Jill on the one hand saying our society is built to serve men's inner expectations and it's not built to serve women's inner expectations. Right. So, um, it was just such a juxtaposition, but I think it really does come down to what we were talking about before that the expectations themselves are quite different. So we could be equally men and women equally in equal numbers be obligers, but women are obliging to the outer expectation that they are selfless and taking care of others. And men are obliging to the outer expectations that they are taking charge and that they are the breadwinner. Right. And it's really these outer expectations that are putting us on this track of very a very gendered society and a very um, unequal society in terms of leadership roles and um, compensation. But moving on from the gender issue and, and, and reconciling that with the four tendencies framework, there was another thing that just really stuck with me from Gretchen's episode that I wanted to talk to you about, which was that I was so impressed that she had reached the pinnacle of the legal career. She mm-hmm. was clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor, Supreme Court Justice, which is like the most prestigious thing you can accomplish. She had gone to the number one law school, Yale Law School, and she had been editor of the Law Journal. Like literally there, you cannot get more prestige in your legal career than that. And the fact that she was bold enough to just step away from it and say, you know what, I can see that these other law clerks really love what they're doing and I don't Mm -hmm. love what I'm doing, so I'm going to go do what I would really love, which is being a writer. It just impresses me to no end because I think that's a very rare characteristic. I mean, how many times have you heard this saying, don't get off a winning horse? Right. <laughs> and I think that's what traps a lot of people into doing living kind of a humdrum life and doing something that doesn't actually really stoke their passions. Is like, well, I'm pretty good at this thing and it's going well and, and so I'm good at it and I've accomplished a lot with it and I'm just afraid to leave it all behind. And then who would I even be? Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the points that she made around knowing herself so well and knowing that like she went into law sort of not as intentionally maybe as she would have liked, you know, I mean, everyone sort of makes those semi unintentional decisions when they're, you know, college age or, you know, I think she made the point that she knew herself so well that she knew that, you know, she had to move on to, um, into the thing that she loved. And I think that may be, part of at least how she would describe it. I think that may be part of her upholder tendency of, you know, meeting the outer expectation, meaning achieving well, but then also finding a way to meet her inner expectations by achieving well in a new arena, even though she was really successful in the first arena. And like you said, it's a rare characteristic. And I think, you know, she, she would agree that it's not something that is, is easily done by everyone, but I think it's encouraging. And I think you've had a few guests who've done this, who've, you know, who've been doing well in one space, who've really seen that in order for them to, you know, to play the long game, meaning like they're looking ahead, you know, 20, 30, 40 years for the, for the rest of their career and the rest of their lives, they've realized that, Hey, you know, I may be on a winning horse, but I think there's, there's an opportunity for me to, to grow even further. And, you know, if I was really great, 
at this one thing. Maybe I can find a way to be great at this other thing that I really, really love. Maybe I won't, but I'm willing to take that risk. And that, I, I found that really inspiring. And I love hearing those stories from your other guests. Um, it's not an easy thing to do, but I think it's, you know, the opportunity is always there, but it's like, you've got to, you've got to find that wherewithal to say it's time to, to move into what I really love to do. Yeah. I would say my guests fall into three categories. There's the people like you just described who were in one area doing well, but had the courage to make a leap to do what they really loved. There, the second category are people that were in a job and got fired and were, maybe they were in an industry that was, you know, dying like journalism. I had a or maybe they were blindsided. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. And couldn't find another job in yeah. their area. And they literally had to reinvent themselves mm-hmm. and they had to get really in touch with who they are and what they enjoyed in order to do that. So that's the second category. And then the third category, like Jocelyn Aram, who I had on this podcast recently, the um, archivist, yeah. just knew what they loved yes. from the beginning and just always did it and didn't even consider doing it otherwise. But I would say the first category is the most common. Almost all of those people, when I've asked them what is their proudest accomplishment, they say their proudest accomplishment is that they had the courage to take the leap and start the thing that they loved. The thing that they're always the most proud of is that they had the courage to take the leap. I just have to say the courage that Gretchen Rubin had because it's really hard to leave behind being a Supreme Court clerk. (laughs) That level of success and also it just really starts to tie into your identity, right? Right. I'm a... I'm a super successful um, lawyer or in my legal career and to let that go and be able to just be like, yeah, all that work, it's okay. It's in the past. It wasn't what I wanted and make a jump. I think that stops a lot of people not just fear, but also just identity. Hey, it's okay. There's not like one linear, linear path. And these women who you see who are, are interviewed, who are at the top of their game, most of them did not, you know, start in one job or one sector or, or, you know, one artistry area and then decides that, you know, they're just going to, you know, climb a ladder on that, on that plane. There's a lot of other zigzags that they needed to do in order to get to where they are. Sometimes those things happen fast. Sometimes they don't, but I think it's most reassuring to know that, you know, if we're all going to play the long game in our careers and, and be happy and fulfilled, that the, that those changes are going to come up either by choice or by necessity. And if we see it as, as a positive and not as a scary fear filled risky leap, um, then it's, we're more likely to, uh, to stick with it and, and get to our, our true calling. I hope. Yeah. Pretty much everyone that I've had on this show has had a zigzaggy career path. Hardly anyone has not. And the other thing I wanted to say is that there is that scary feeling about starting over again in a new field, but you're not really totally starting over. And that's something that I've only learned recently. You may be starting at the bottom of the hierarchy, but you're bringing to that new role all of the lessons you've learned throughout your career. And so many of the things and skills that we learn that we don't think are going to be transferable really, really are. I had the founder of iRelaunch, Carol Fishman Cohen, on this show, and she even talked about how skills that you acquire as a stay-at-home mother can be transferable to the working world. 
especially women who are really active in PTAs and all the kinds of organizational and, and people skills that they develop. But women often don't realize how transferable those skills are. So it's just like, no matter what big change you're making, you are bringing to the table everything that you've learned up until that point. And things that I did, I mean, I used to do uh, investigatory interviews as an assistant attorney general at the New York AG's office. Basically depositions, it's another word for depositions. And I never would have thought, oh, well, this will be a good skill that'll help me someday have a podcast. But yeah, as I started the podcast, I was like, I just think interviewing is so easy. And I realized, oh, yeah, I've been doing it for about a decade in my career, both as an investigator and then as an investigative journalist. So to me, interviewing comes very easily, Um, even though technically I'm starting off brand new in podcasting, know nothing about broadcasting, know nothing about um, how, you know, how to do a podcast. I was bringing all that knowledge with me without even knowing it, actually. Right, exactly. Um, and I think that, yeah, that's what I like that you took away from the discussion with Gretchen is that, she, you know, A, she knew herself very well. B, she, I don't think she doubted that her, um, you know, her successful legal career was was going to allow her to, to, you know, relate to people and see and analyze things in a way that was new and unique. And she said that everyone in her life, her family, um, her husband, were very supportive of her making that leap. And I think that's a bit on the rare side. Most everyone I've talked to have said there's always going to be naysayers. And the naysayers can be legitimately concerned about your ability to make it work. Right. But they often also just are very threatened by the idea that you are going to be bold and live your dreams because it reflects something to them that they know that they've been too scared to do. <laughs> That's a very common thread. And you'll find naysayers on any bold thing you're going to do. There will be an army of naysayers that come out at you. And I often think there's a mixture of good intentions and just them projecting their own fears on you or regrets. Yes, exactly. And I think that, you know, Gretchen's example was, like you said, more on the rare side of having that, you know, awesome support system. I think it's, it's good that, you know, a lot of your other guests have brought up where they had challenges from family or friends or, or clients or coworkers or whomever it was, um, because that's the reality for most people, that when they make a change, there's going to be, um, there's going to be resistance to it just because it's, it's disrupting the order, especially if they're an obliger and they're, they're suddenly doing things um, for themselves for the maybe for the first time in a while. Yeah. And she said that she was lucky enough that she just felt this overwhelming compulsion mm-hmm. to write. Yeah. And I think that is also somewhat rare. And most people are in a job and they're thinking, well, I don't want to do this anymore, but I just don't know what I want to do. And that's where we've talked a lot about the importance of connecting with yourself and getting to know yourself and doing that work, even though it's harder than you would think to know your own self. Um, it's worth taking the time to do that work because it can put you on the track that will make you ultimately kill it far more than you would if you just stay dialing it in to the thing that uh, you know, you've learned you're good at, but it's not really a reflection of who you are. Yes, Thank you, Carolyn. It's been so great to have you talk about these issues with me. We'd love to hear from all of you who are listening what your thoughts may be on both the Gretchen Rubin episode and some of these issues about 
Should we be saying men and women are different? Should we be saying that they're the same? And how can we all get in touch with our inner selves so that we can really kill it? So thanks for joining us and we'll see you next week. Thank you. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to our podcast, rate and review us on iTunes, and most importantly, tell a friend about us. Thanks for joining us.